0: The Supreme Court denies an emergency injunction against an Illinois City's AR-15 ban. Plus, the Second Amendment Foundation's Alan Gottlieb responds to questions about his organization's finances. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our free weekly newsletter if you want to stay up to date with what's happening with guns in America. Uh, You can also buy a membership if you'd like to support our reporting and get access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and reporting that you won't find anywhere else, as well as being able to get this show a day early and have an opportunity to appear on the show like we had last week. But this week, we are uh, going to talk with special guest Alan Gottlieb from the Second Amendment Foundation. Uh, in last week's show, I mentioned that there uh, is a fight between the Second Amendment Foundation and the Washington Attorney General. And so I uh, invited Second Amendment Foundation to come on the show to talk about this, to address the, uh, the entire situation. And so Alan agreed to do that. Welcome to the
1: show, Alan. Great to be with you, Stephen. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, thank you. I appreciate you coming on to bring some transparency to what's going on in this situation. Uh, and transparency on my end, I've obviously uh, reported on Second Amendment Foundation for a long time. I've spoken at uh, the Gun Rights Policy Conference, and you guys have given me some awards over the years. Uh, no, there was no money exchange or anything like that. So, But I figured I'd be up front and tell people uh, off the bat the, that I've known you for a long time and covered you for a long time. But it's a professional Uh, news, you know, reporter source relationship, right?
1: Most definitely. Yeah. We're cheap. We don't, we don't give reporters any money. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, But yes. So there, uh, uh, there was a report in the wall street journal that came out a few weeks ago talking about uh, an investigation by the Washington state attorney general's office uh, into uh, your groups, second Amendment foundation, the citizens, uh, committee for the right to keep and bear arms are two separate entities that you uh, are uh, a director of and um, the and then also you filed a countersuit or not a countersuit right because there there haven't actually uh, yeah, been any sorry. charges just to, just to start off there haven't actually been any charges brought by the attorney general right just to correct okay so there's no there are no formal accusations of any wrongdoing at this
1: point that's correct
0: And uh, but you guys have filed a lawsuit, a civil rights suit against the attorney general.
1: Yeah, we have mainly because, quite frankly, uh, we were served what they call civil investigative demands. They served us with eight of them. Uh, And uh, the only group we supposedly are investigating, it's all with regard to the Second Amendment Foundation. But anything I'm involved in got these CIDs. Uh, and uh, we decided that while they were overbroad and they were just ridiculous, we were going to cooperate anyway and give them everything they asked for. And to date, we've given them, a, you know, a, a deposition. We've done interrogatories and production for documents. Uh, we've actually supplied them over 75,000 uh, documents, you know, pages of uh, uh, f- files and and uh, you know documents in our office. They've basically raped all our file cabinets. Uh, we've given them everything they've asked for. They've not come back to us and said, you know, uh, here's what you've done wrong. Our attorney said, well, if there's something wrong, we're more than happy to try to correct it. But they haven't. They just keep intimidating us and demanding more and more documents. Uh, they, we've already spent 120 thousand plus dollars. Uh, providing them the information uh, in legal and accounting fees, not counting hundreds of hours of staff time. Uh, and they just keep doing this. Our attorneys have demanded that they you know, pay for our legal fees and that they destroy all the documents we've given them because they've got things they shouldn't even have that we've given them, you know, uh, all, all kinds of personal information as well, credit card information, all kinds of things. Uh, and uh, one of our concerns is they have a staff member who used to be on, or I think still is, on the board of directors of uh, one of the state anti-gun rights groups that, that, that he's hired and put on the staff, uh, who's in the same division that's doing the so-called investigation. Uh, and we, we, you know, we want an apology for this. Uh, and of course, they just don't respond. They don't do anything. When we made that demand, they canceled, a, 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 you know, a, a number of depositions they had with staff members here. And then when we filed the suit, they canceled the rest of the depositions that they had asked for. Uh, And so they're sort of like now in hiding. Uh, Yeah, but they've
0: they've made no statements about charging you or or dropping the investigation or anything in that regard. No, point.
1: no. They've, they've made no statement about dropping the investigation and they've made no statements about, you know, making any charges of wrongdoing, but it's okay. just they're tying up our money. And quite frankly, our civil rights complaint, uh, Stephen, basically, uh, we believe this is retaliation uh, for our, our political positions where we stand. We have three other lawsuits besides this one against the Attorney General of Washington State, one on the 18 to 20 year old young adults not being able to buy semi automatic rifles, We have one on the magazine bans that the state passed. We have one on the so-called assaulting ban that they got and passed. This is sheer intimidation back to us trying to tie us up, waste our time and waste our money. Uh, And we're just a little tired of it.
0: Right. And so, uh, but it's obviously in this atmosphere, we've seen what's happened with the NRA. People in the gun rights movement are concerned about the transparency of how organizations are run. They want to know that their money is going towards you know, those lawsuits that you mentioned and not towards, uh, you know, anything else at like personal expenses or things of that nature. So uh, let's, let's get into some of the uh, accusations that the Wall Street Journal mentioned. Like, again, I do want to make clear that there aren't, there isn't any sort of charges to this. Uh, you aren't actually under any sort of um, uh, criminal case or, or civil case from the state at this point. But um, the Wall Street Journal raised a few uh, concerns that I think are worth Bringing to you and, and having you address right, and so the main crux of this centers around um, some firms that that you own personally that do business with the Second Amendment Foundation and the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. Now, I will say I did look at your 990s for 2021 and, and back to 2020, and that's before any of this. The, before the you know the Wall Street Journal pieces from just a few weeks ago. So any of before any of this became uh you know the concern of the news you were disclosing all these things have you how long have you been disclosing that relationship first
1: of all from well, for 40 years uh okay. or, or more actually more than 40 years uh the attorney general has gone back and asked. it's not a
0: them. new this isn't no. a new thing
1: necessarily the, the it's the been attorney disclosed general, in the 990s the attorney general has gone back 40 years for asking for this information it's it's to be honest about it we've been ordered by the internal revenue service several times uh, it's, we're independent audited by outside accountants every single year. All this is disclosed in the audits, in the tax returns on our website. Uh, we, we, we try to be extremely transparent about this. Uh, and obviously somebody in the AG's office either leaked directly to the Wall Street Journal or leaked to somebody else who leaked to the Wall Street Journal that this investigation was going on. Uh, and so the Wall Street Journal, I don't think got the documents from the AG's office, but got them right off our website.
0: Yes, and that's where I got your 990s. It's not, uh, as far as I can tell, that none of that is a hidden relationship. It's certainly something that is disclosed. Um, and uh, how long? And there weren't any periods in time where where you were doing this work um, that that where you weren't disclosing it, right?
1: No, it's it's okay. always been publicly disclosed, uh, and quite frankly, the reason why you publicly disclosed it is it's in the benefit and the interest of the foundation because it lowers their cost of operation. Uh, and uh, you know, this goes back. I guess I'm, I'm going I'm going back over forty forty years ago. We had some employees that tried to take the organization over, and they filed a suit in in, in state court here in Washington, of which they lost, and we got one counter. Uh, ju- judgment for defamation against them, but some of their claims were the office building we're in, which we again is disclosed in our audits and our tax returns. That you know we initially bought it jointly because uh, the groups couldn't get financial you know uh, loans to be able to do it. So my wife and I put our names and you know interest you know on the line so to speak. Uh, and then over time uh, we divided the property where we own the office building and they own the land. And then they ran into financial trouble and we bought the land back from them. They rented the building from us. And what's interesting is this is one of the initial charges way back when, 40 years ago, uh, where the court ruled on it that, quite, that the transaction was legal and in the interest of the foundation. And so the attorney general should know that, and, you know, and the Wall Street Journal should have known that. That wasn't in their article that the Washington State you know, court, uh, superior court in the state of Washington, you know, ru- you know, stamped it as as approved. Uh, then likewise, one of the other transactions is, uh, uh, a company of mine that is the list brokerage, mailing list brokerage, uh, and, and uh, competitive bidding for printing and mailing, uh, the outside firms in behalf of the foundation. Uh, and we charge three cents for every piece we mail uh, that gets mailed that, 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 that we work on. And the list rental broker, the brokerage, uh, we, we get a 20% commission, which any list broker would get. So we get exactly what anybody else would get if they did it. And on the $0.03, that's interesting, that was also in, in the lawsuit 40 years ago. And that $0.03 cents was set by the state court, set the, the rate at $0.03 cents 40 years ago. And it's never been raised one nickel in 40 years. Uh, and again, the state, the state court you know, approved it. Uh, and so, the, for, the, for the AG of the Wall Street Journal to bring this up 40 years later is a little bit ridiculous.
0: Okay, uh, and you know, I think I think that does address. I mean, obviously, we'll see what else uh, comes out from the investigation, however it goes, and and certainly we'll continue to follow that. But uh, it seems, as far as I understand it, at least that as long as you're disclosing these things and the board is approving them. Uh, it's not necessarily a legal issue. The bigger question here, though, is the ethical issues, right? The the, the problem of self-dealing or, uh, you know, having a director's company do business with the nonprofit uh, is certainly not one that's unique to your situation. This is something that um, has been a point of controversy for a, a number of groups. One that comes to mind for me is uh, Wreaths Across America, which is responsible for uh, laying wreaths at Arlington National Cemetery and other cemeteries across the country. They have been criticized for a similar practice um, where they buy the wreaths from a company that is owned by uh, the directors of the, the foundation. Uh, now, they also haven't received any sort of legal rep- uh, reprimands for doing this. It's, they disclose it as well. Um, it, it's not Something that they've stopped doing because of the criticism, and um, that that that's what it reminds me of is that situation, and that can be something that people object to, right? Um, because the concern is how can donors know that this contract is actually the best fit for the Second Amendment Foundation or the Citizens Right uh, or C- Citizens Committee to for the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, and so what assurances have, can you offer to people who have that kind of concern about whether these are really the best deals because you're on you know, both ends of
1: them? Well, first of all, the board of directors, our trustees, approves them. And since it's a related party transaction, I abstain. Uh, and they, they approve it, and it's matched against It's in our, our minutes, which is also provided to the Attorney General as well for the last 40 years of our board meetings, uh, that they are done at below market rates, uh, so it saves the foundation money. Uh, and you probably wouldn't find anybody else out there doing it at a below market rate. I care about it. Every dollar we save that we don't have to spend is like a dollar we raised. Uh, and so it, it gets done that way. Our independent auditors look at it and review it and make sure that it's in the interest of the foundation as well. And again, we've been audited by the Internal Revenue Service several times over the years. And That's the first thing they check is any related party transaction. So related party transactions that favor and benefit the organization are a good thing. And I think we've proved that over the last 40 years. And, you know, anybody who's looked at it has come away with that. So it, it just doesn't, these, these charges now are really by the attorney general are being done to try and hurt us. Hurt our fundraising, hurt, hurt us to be able to spending time on, on our mission and uh, accomplish the lawsuits we're filing, uh, and he, you know, and it's not just us. He's attacking, by the way. To be fair about it, uh, he's done these same CIDs, civil investigative demands, to Davidsons and to RSR, trying to stop them from being able to ship product into the state of Washington and tie them up and cost them a fortune. And in fact, Davidsons and RSR just filed suit back against the Attorney General because to comply with his demands and the CIDs, which they're, they're not, they're not complying. We can. Comply We felt we needed to be transparent. They've said no, because this is ridiculous, and it would cost Davidsons over a million dollars to comply with with the demands the AG has made. Again, he's picking on the whole firearms industry, uh, any groups that support gun rights. Uh, He's going after all kinds of gun control measures to try and hurt gun owners in general. Uh, This is no secret that he's been an enemy of ours, uh, and, and it's not exactly a fun relationship. But he's not supposed to misuse his office. Uh, and, and, and do things of this nature. And when he does, we file the civil rights, you know, complain against him because this is total misuse of his office. It's not the first time he's done this, by the way. He just got stopped down unanimously by the state Supreme Court on a unanimous decision that he misused the same exact statutes that he's coming after us over to, to, to investigate us uh, against another nonprofit here in the state of Washington as well Uh and got ruled unanimously. He also, part of our demands is we then asked Uh, through the public disclosure stuff, for documents and information for out of his files of any complaints against us and anything that might trigger an investigation. Uh, And they've been both slow to to respond uh, outside the guidelines of state law as well as not give us documents. So in my deposition, when they deposed me, they provided a document that I'd never seen before that was a memo from somebody to somebody else that mentioned me in it. Uh, and, and which should have been disclosed to us uh, of our public records demands that they didn't even give us. And they can't claim uh, a legal privilege because they actually provided it to us in a deposition. Uh, and then under state law, you know, they broke the law and they owe us money for that because there's a fine attached every time, every day you didn't give it to us. And every document you didn't hand over, he just got hit in in Washington state court uh for a $200,000 fine for doing that to, to another organization that he didn't, didn't agree with. And now he's had to admit this 100,000 documents in another case that he didn't give either. Uh, I mean, I mean, the, the corruption running in our attorney general's office is what really needs to be investigated.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think that's certainly a, a legitimate point to bring up about the attorney general. And obviously he has a political motivation uh, that is apparent for why he might want to pursue something like this against you. However, of course, that's also true in New York with uh, Letitia James, the Democratic Attorney General there, and going after the NRA. And you know, at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything that has been reported on publicly about the NRA's issues is false, right? And so that's why I think it's important to, you know, of course, have have you come on and talk about this and give some answers to, uh, you know, yeah. th- these. These, uh, that's, uh, allegations. Why that's why
1: I'm glad to come on and give these answers and talk about it. Yeah. Because we have absolutely nothing to hide. You know, the NRA fought, and didn't want to give Letitia James James, you know, information she demanded and asked for. We've given the AG every single thing he's asked for because, quite frankly, when we give it to him, he's going to choke on it. And I'm really kind of glad about that. And now that he's gone overboard, that's why we filed the suit and we expect to get damages from it. Uh, you know, one of the things that also was in the Wall Street Journal article that they got from the AG's office. Is this uh, under, under related parties, which you've probably seen by looking at our tax returns? There's also this called, something called the Service Bureau Association. Uh, yes. Okay. And there's both the Wall Street Journal,
0: associates, and the Service Bureau; those are the two.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and the the AG, you know, is trying to make the argument here that the Service Bureau is me. Well, the service bureau is a nonprofit org set up like a, it's set up like a farm co-op. It's a co-op uh, that works for its members. The committee and the foundation are members. It does a lot of services for us. It provides our caging operations. Uh, it, it, it takes our, our accounting, our data processing. It runs our health insurance programs for the group so they can get a better health insurance for our employees, at, you know, at, at lower prices. having more people in the same pool. Uh, it buys l- large things of equipment that both groups may want to use but couldn't afford to buy on their own. It bills out out on a a use basis at cost. It makes no money. It bills out at cost. and, uh, And at the end of any year, if it shows the profit, it rebates it back to its members, the committee and the foundation based on a patronage dividend, based on the percentages of usage of money they spent. So it's revenue neutral. It goes back to the groups. It was set up a long time ago, 40 years ago, by accounting firm Cooper's Library, which at the time was one of the big eight accounting firms, Because groups can't commingle their money from a 501c3 and a 501c4, by having this in the middle, so to speak, you you, you could share certain equipment, you could share certain employees, you could get certain things done at cheaper cheaper rates, and it was set up for that purpose. I have never gotten a penny from it, zero. But the Mm, the Wall Street Journal and the Attorney General play this thing about what percentage of total dollars raised, quote unquote, went to related parties, as if it went to my pocket. I don't get anything from that at all. So they come up with like X percentage of dollars that, that that we spend go to me. It doesn't go to me at all. Quite frankly, it's totally a fraudulent claim, and we proved it in court years ago. Uh, and you know, and we've been ordered by the IRS with it. It would go crazy if that wasn't the case. Uh, and so for the AG to do this, and for the Wall Street Journal to 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 not give the whole full story, uh, and, and just basically raise issues without closing those issues, I found it to be a little appalling.
0: Interesting. That actually was going to be my next question here, because the Wall Street Journal has a passage in their piece that says, um, you know, from 2010 to to 2021, $22 million went to uh, you, family members and uh, entities associated with you, uh, which is 27% of every dollar raised. But a big chunk of that, looking through your 990s, goes to this uh, service bureau company. And, And so you're saying that you don't actually make any profit off of the no, I get absolutely nothing. In, in
1: full disclosure, of fairness, my wife had a hand in running the service bureau and was paid, which the Wall Street Journal referenced, twenty four thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year. Recently, up to right. up to one point, she only made eighteen thousand dollars a year, but twenty four thousand dollars is just way below market. And again, we perform these services and this work at below what people would normally charge. And again, you know, it's not like you know, in the N R A, we had employees making a million, two million dollars a year. I mean, this is ridiculous when when you're picking on $28,000, which is so far below market for the work performed uh, and trying to make these accusations. It's disgusting. Hmm.
0: Okay. And so I guess the bottom line here is that uh, certainly you do have these uh, related entities that work with Second Amendment Foundation and uh, the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, but they do it um, at below market rates from what you're saying, and, or
1: in the um, case and, of the service bureau at cost.
0: And, and so you, you're not you, – uh, you, you haven't done it and you also disclose these things. That, this is sort of the bottom line on this investigation
1: yeah. in your point of view. We've totally disclosed it from you know for, for day one. The foundation's coming up on its 50th year. Uh, these have been disclosed for every single tax return, every single audit we've done, uh, outside independent audit. Uh, we, we provided it on our website. Anybody who emails us or writes us who wants a copy of the audit, so the tax returns, we provide them to the public. They're all over the place. I mean, there's, there's nothing hidden about any of this at all. It's done to benefit the foundation, and I, we've proved over time that it benefits the foundation.
0: And uh, I, I mean, I, this, I think one question people will have is, you know, why not institute a bidding uh, process for these sorts of services that are, that are offered by, you know, for instance, the, the mailing list service from Merrill? Uh, you uh, know, why true. not seek out other
1: bidders? So do true. you? That's a good question. Uh, actually, we have seeked out bidders for the the, 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 the mailing part of it, and we get a, a, we pay, Merrill Associates gets paid three cents per piece mailed. We've gotten estimates from other places at, at, from nine cents to twelve cents. Uh, three cents is a lot less than nine or twelve cents. So it saves the organization a lot of money with regard to the commissions on the list rentals. It's the same twenty percent no matter who does it, if we did it or somebody else did it, that's the industry standard commission. Uh, and the bottom line is we know the list better than anybody else. We know our, what, what we're looking for better than anybody else. And we can do a better job and we prove that.
0: Okay. And um, and and is there ways that donors can, uh, you know, see that bidding process or see the, how that get you know, is that part of it? Well, public as well? Or how does that
1: work? These are p- proposals and contracts from other outside agencies that are willing to do work for the foundation. And that's what their going rates are. And uh, you know, I I guess uh, you know, it's, they don't make the rates totally public, but if anybody were to call them and ask them what they charge, or I want to have an organization, I want you to do these services, they make a bid on it. And you see it's three to four times what the foundation's currently paying. I'm pretty proud the foundation gets away paying such a little money on it. Uh, we run a very tight ship. Again, like I said earlier, every dollar we save is like a dollar raised.
0: Okay. And I will say, uh, I will note too, I, you know, I brought up Reads Across America earlier as a, a sort of similar criticisms have been lodged against them, but I, I will say that the vast majority of their revenue from the foundation goes to that private company. There's the necessarily the case here. Um, you know, when I looked at your most recent nine nineties, um, it was, I think, about ten percent of revenue went to um, the Merrill Associates and and the Service Bureau. Which, uh, I mean, if you're not even making any profit at and all, again, yeah, the Service again, Bureau, the Service, Bureau, the Service, have even Service Bureau, account.
1: The Service Bureau is a nonprofit org uh, that you know I don't own. Uh, it's not not one of my businesses. It's a related party because mm-hmm. the groups are members of it. And again, that we disclose it that way. Hmm.
0: Okay. And, uh, and I think there was a radio station sales that they mentioned in the Wall Street Journal, too. Can you talk a little bit about that situation as well?
1: Yeah, the, the, the Second Amendment Foundation and the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep Your Arms a number of years ago at one of our gun rights policy conferences, a resolution was passed that we should get involved in media ownership uh, because the media is so biased against you know, gun owners and gun rights. Uh, and it started out, we found a station, in, the first one in Portland, Oregon, uh, and the groups really couldn't afford to buy it. So we ended up having a person who had worked there owning part of it. Uh, I put, and my wife put money into own part of it, and the committee and the foundation put money into own part of it. And then over time, the other employee that was there got bought out. Uh, and it ended up, I owned a third of it, uh, the committee owned a third of it and the foundation owned a third of it. And then we ended up buying f- three other radio stations that I didn't own any of, but each group owned 50% of, uh, of it. And Joe Tarter who was the president of the foundation in, uh, back in 2008, I believe it was, decided that the group should buy me out and have owned 50% of all the stations. So they'd all be e- equal. Uh, and then maybe set up a separate spinoff media company to spin those off to, uh, Uh, The board of directors set up a committee, the board went through it all. Uh, I wasn't involved in any of the negotiations or anything at all. Uh, When the final votes came through, I abstained. They went out and got an independent bid uh, on what the station was worth uh, and offered me 20% less than what my share would be worth under the independent bid. I said, fine, If you're going to want to do it. I just want to do it. It's fine with me. Uh, And again, I was, uh, of course, I was a a related party, I totally abstained. It was not involved in any of the negotiations of it. I just accepted accepted their final offer at 20% below the appraised value. Uh, and uh, again, it's fully disclosed in our audits, fully disclosed to the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, the Federal Communications Commission approved the transaction. Uh, I, mean, th- I mean, there was nothing hidden there at all. Did I make a profit on that? Yes, I did, because the station went up in value over, over the X number of years that we had owned it.
0: Okay. Uh, do you remember how much of a profit you made? in? Uh, in I don't remember the action, exact or...
1: profit I made, but the foundation had to pay me about a half a million dollars for my interest. And so did the Citizens Committee had to pay me about a half a million dollars for my interest in it as well. Uh, and bear in mind, a lot of that money I helped raise for the groups to be able to pay because uh, that was part of my job description as executive vice president to, to raise the dollars. And then in addition to that, what's really in, in, interesting about it is is that I wanted another media property that I had I purchased for the groups, the group purchase—I didn't own it. Uh, Talk America Radio Network made a small fortune when it got sold to IDT, the telephone company, and that money was used part of that transaction for that purpose. So basically, I had to end up figuring out how to go raise the money for the groups to do it anyway.
0: Okay, and um, just getting a broader view here for a moment. The Second Amendment Foundation—you uh, know—you guys brought in somewhere over seven million dollars in. Revenue um, fundraising from 2021, according to your 990s here, um, and it looks like you spent about 1.7 million on legal. Uh, this is your second largest expense, uh, to advertising and promotion being the largest at 2 million. Uh, you know what? How much of the money brought into the Second Amendment Foundation? What percentage goes directly to programs and lawsuits on a general?
1: Well, uh, if, I, if I pull away from your camera, I have an audit over here I can look at, but it's in the audit. There's a, the, Near the end of the pages on the audit, there's a page that shows breakdown by percentages, how much goes to legal action, how much goes to public education, how much goes to management general, and how much goes to fundraising. And I'm very proud of those numbers. I can't give them to you off the top of my head and be accurate. Uh, but but they, they beat most- Do you know a uh,
0: ballpark, I guess?
1: Um the, the vast majority of it goes to public education and legal action. Uh okay. I, I don't want to give the numbers out of the to top of my head because I'll be wrong and then I'll be held accountable for wrong numbers. But they're on our sure. website. If anybody wants to go to SAF.org, go to the financial documents tab and look at the look at the audits uh, or the tax returns, uh and, and, and they're there in the pages. You can look at, at the raw numbers as well as the percentages. Okay. Um, and you know, and, obviously. And by, we'll, and by the way, Stephen, like GuideStar yes. out there, which, which which does reviews of, net, of nonprofits uh, in that area, lists us very, very highly rated.
0: Okay, um, and people can check that as well for themselves. GuideStar is publicly available. Go to GuideStar. So, yes, but um, okay. So we we will obviously keep on top of this, both on the uh, whatever happens with the investigation. And what happens with your lawsuit? What, what is the goal of the lawsuit, I guess? And the, what do you want to see happen at the end of that?
1: Well, at the end of it, one, we'd like the harassment stopped, okay? First of all, we'd like to have our, our – uh, because it was, this is so ridiculous, we had to waste donors' money uh, on, on, on production and fighting the Attorney General on this stuff. I'd like to see the agency's office have to reimburse us our dollars, which is they've been forced to do with other, other, other people in, in the past. Uh, I'd also like to see all the documents we gave them uh, returned to us and destroyed for, uh, and so they don't keep records of everything we do, which might end up in the hands of our opponents on, in, in, the, in the gun c- prohibition community, because they've asked us every every Internet ad we've ever run, every direct mail piece we've ever put out, every ad we've run in magazines and newspapers, all kinds of internal do- documents, all of our minutes from our board meetings for the last 40 years. Uh, there's an awful lot of proprietary information that they have they have no business retaining and we'd like to have it that they we gave it to them so they could look at it to see that they're wrong uh and that this is a ridiculous investigation but we'd like to have all that back we also they supply these civil investigative demands on a lot of our vendors We'd like an apology letter sent to all of our vendors because it's a chilling effect on people that we work with, uh, in addition to donors and, and, and supporters. Uh, we, we'd like a, an apology letter sent to them. We'd also like a list of all those people because they've done, done it secretly. We only know the one donor, the vendors that have come back to us and complained to us about it, about how much money and time it's taken them to comply with the AG's office as well. We don't have the full list of, it, you know, example, like I know they've gone to the utility company to find out what our utility bills are, even though we gave them the you know, cancel checks and bills the utility companies give us. They've demanded things, you know, when you go to, the, you go to utility companies to try and, and, and hurt us or our internet providers uh, to try and shut us down, it's rather alarming. And so we, we want all that stopped. We'd like all those documents back. We'd like a list of who they've gone to. We'd like apologies sent to all those people. Uh this is just a, a disgusting invasion of our privacy and harassment.
0: Hmm. Okay, and um, so we will we will certainly stay on top of this story. And if there are any further just, questions please. that come up, we'll, we will we'll have you back on the show. I really do appreciate the transparency here, that the willingness to come and speak on this, um, and people uh certainly should do their due diligence before giving to any gun rights group in my opinion uh or any any charity frankly but um that's why I think it's important for these questions to be answered and 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 uh for people to understand what's going on uh,
1: I really appreciate while I you have doing you. This. Yeah I really appreciate you doing this. because I think it's just it's important as well. Thank you.
0: Certainly. And uh while I have you here can we get some updates on some of these cases that you guys are uh, currently fighting in court. I know that you've just had a victory in New Jersey, and you just filed a brand new case in Maryland, right? Let's start yeah, with New Jersey.
1: Yeah, that's this this week alone uh, in New Jersey. Of course, we had a temporary restraining order filed that we won in New Jersey. Now it became a preliminary injunction, uh, knocking out a lot of the. Uh, things they put in place uh, in New Jersey for where you can carry your firearm uh, and other things with, with various laws trying to discourage gun ownership and gun, gun use for self-defense in New Jersey. And so the judge- that,
0: that judge also upheld some of the permitting requirements that New Jersey added in after the, um, the Bruin case. Were you guys uh, disappointed in that result? Or uh, you know, how do you feel about that case
1: overall? You still view it as a significant win? It's definitely a significant win. Uh, I'm not sure you say the judge really upheld it. The judge wouldn't just give a preliminary injunction against certain things in there. And this is, okay. turned out to be a consolidated case on the appeals level. So some of those issues we didn't necessarily raise in our complaint to start with, <clears throat> which mm-hmm. makes it a little confusing to do who won what. Uh, but uh, it, it's good. The state had already filed notice of appeal of it. Uh, and so they'll be appealing it and we move out the appeals court. And we want it moved up as quickly as possible because we really want to get one of these cases to the United States Supreme Court to smack down a lot of these so-called invasions of uh, gun rights in a number of states like you know, New York, New Jersey, uh, mm. Illinois, Washington, Oregon. And so uh, we want to get a case in the Supreme Court. And the quicker these move, the better for gun ownership and, and gun rights.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like the court wants one of these Bruin response law cases to get up there fairly quickly, or at least they want to see us. The Second Circuit rule on these cases pretty quick. That was uh, apparent in what Alito and Thomas said when they denied an emergency injunction in the New York Antioch case. But um, so part of what was enjoined in this New Jersey case, though, were were the, these uh, expansive new gun free zones, effectively, and uh, the sort of flipping of preemption on where you can carry a gun on private property that. The way it's always been is that you could carry somewhere uh, like a store something that's publicly accessible, private property, uh, as long as the owner didn't post a sign or otherwise tell you that you can't carry there. Now you've seen in New York and New Jersey and uh, elsewhere, this flipping of that uh, assumption so that you can't carry unless the store owner says you can somehow, somehow gets that point across to you by posting a sign or some other mechanism. And this was... These were blocked, right, in the New Jersey, New Jersey case. But despite that, and they've been blocked before, in the, or at least ruled unconstitutional or likely unconstitutional. I guess in a, uh, the way these lower courts uh, you know operate. And uh, I know for for average people it can be kind of confusing, but uh, they're usually ruling on whether it's likely to be unconstitutional because you're at the early stage of a of a case. But the bottom line, these these provisions have been blocked by several federal courts at this point, uh, even though they might remain in effect in New York because of stays that have been put in. Um, the rulings have been bad for those governments, those state governments. And here comes Maryland just this week and says, we're going to do the same thing anyway. Uh, and you get, what has been your, your guys'
1: response to that? Well, as soon as the governor signed the law on the same day, we filed the suit in federal court, uh, which, was, which was just filed. Uh, the state hasn't even got to answer it yet, uh, the complaint yet. But again, it's going to fall in line over time. It's going to be a win again for, for gun rights. Uh, you know, when Bruin decision got handed down, Stephen, uh, what I expected was we'd see places like New York, New Jersey, Maryland, you know, Illinois come up and pass new laws that were slightly less restrictive then what got struck down uh, to try and figure out how they can niche it in and still be anti-gun and get away with as much as they can in denying gun rights. But they didn't do that. They all like sort of doubled down and and, and put in laws that were more, yeah. even more extreme than White got knocked out. That may be a blessing for us in disguise because now that's totally indefensible on their part.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that does seem to be how things have gone in the aftermath of Bruin. Um, you know, I think, uh One of the quotes I believe it was from you i we we just published this piece at the reload before i came came on here to to interview you but uh it talks about how it's actually harder to carry a gun legally in Maryland now than it was before the old uh law was struck down by bruin
1: that's correct there's less places you could legally carry it you know my, my great example I love it even take going from New, York, New Jersey to New York. You know, in New York, they made like Times Square area without defining what that area is, a gun-free zone. Uh, mm-hmm. And so then you can't, you can't you know, have a gun there. You can't carry a gun even if you're licensed to do so. Well, now what's happened is you've had businesses in the Times Square area where it wasn't even carrying, you know, on your person concealed outside to protect yourself. You had the gun had, with a permit in your own store to, oper- you know, operation to protect your, 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 your property and your life in your store. And those permits now are being rescinded because they're staying at the gun free zone, and now you can't have your gun even in your own store because Times Square is the gun free zone. So, people that even were issued premises permits in New York are now losing those permits under this new law, which is more restrictive than what was there before.
0: Yeah, and then Judge uh, Bum in New Jersey in the New Jersey case mentioned that many of the plaintiffs in that case had previously been able to carry a gun and then had stopped doing so because of all the new restrictions, because there are not a lot of places you can legally. Take it, and I think unfortunately, Maryland is basically in that same boat mm-hmm. um, as soon as their law takes effect in October. Uh, now, you, the NRA has filed a suit alongside their Maryland uh, affiliate that's uh, similar to the suit that you guys have filed with uh, the Firearms Policy Coalition and Maryland Shall Issue. Um, so, do you know of any differences between the two? Do you think they're going to get combined into one case? How do you see this going?
1: Well, the NRA suit is a little broader than ours. We narrow ours a little bit because we want to make sure we win at the, at the at plenary injunction or TRO levels. They made theirs a bit broader, uh, which makes it a little mm-hmm. harder to win at that level. Uh, I think that we got to assign different judges in different, in, in, you know, for each case. I'm sure the state of Maryland is going to move to combine the two cases together and I'm sure they'll get combined because you know economy of scale for the state the judges courts are going to rule that way so I assume we'll mm-hmm. be going up together uh for, for the for the whole argument.
0: Okay, interesting. And you're optimistic?
1: I'm not that optimistic on the uh trial court level because the judge I think that's going to end up getting it is not necessarily a, you know near anywhere near a supporter of gun rights you know, at, or being fair on the issue. Uh, but I guess to the appeals level, and again, one of these cases are we're going to get to the Supreme Court and we're going to win at that level and take care of the whole problem in all these states that are uh, infringed on gun rights.
0: Hmm. You know, what, one of the takes that I've seen uh, recently this week, especially in the wake of the Supreme Court not uh, deciding not to get involved in uh, at an emergency basis in the Illinois-Naperville uh, assault weapon ban case is a uh, sort of a, a lot of pessimism surrounding how these court fights are going, because what we've seen is often a lower court, you know, a district court judge may uh, enjoin a, a, the, some of these brown response laws or even some of the uh, AR-15 bans and magazine limit cases. But then, you know, the sort of the judicial system... Machinery takes over and that those rulings get stayed so the laws remain in effect. And then, you know, perhaps there's people I think uh, are looking at how long it's taking for some of these cases to move through the courts. Uh, Now, you're somebody who deals with these cases all the time and has for decades now. What is your view on it? Do you think that is too pessimistic? Is, I mean, uh, certainly the Supreme Court has indicated they want the lower courts to move faster, at least in that Antioch, New York case. Um, The Seventh Circuit in that Illinois case has uh, issued an expedited schedule. But, you know, obviously for the average person, it's been almost a year and there hasn't been a huge effect from Bruin uh, that they may see in their everyday sort of lives, right, in some of these blue states. And, um, you know, people are, are feeling like maybe They're just going to get churned into oblivion again, like last time uh, after Heller, between Heller and Bruin. Is that, what is your take on that?
1: Well, let me say that I'm as frustrated as, as every other gun owner out there or gun rights supporter out there is about how long it takes to get these cases totally resolved. Uh, you know, we've come a long way, and in the 50 years the Second Amendment Foundation has been around, uh, obviously, you know, it took a lot of years to get to, to our first court victory to start with. So we're moving the pr- things down the line. Things are progressing quicker than they were, you know, decades ago. Uh, but it's not as fast as any of us would like, and it's very frustrating. I'm not surprised the Supreme Court didn't accept the emergency motion and, and take the case in, in, that, in Naperville. Uh, because quite frankly, uh, it got consolidated with a bunch of other cases in Illinois that the appeals court ca- now has that it, they are expediting. And there's no, you know, it's sort of like jumping the shark. The Supreme Court doesn't want to take the case until it's fully briefed. Uh, and. Th- it was a shot in the dark by whoever filed that, that, that emergency order. Uh, I never would have filed it because it obviously gives you some bad press when you lose it. Uh, and it got lost. And there was, no, there was virtually no chance of ever winning that one. Uh, and we need to just progress through the things, build the court record. The Supreme Court is going to take one of these cases, but they want it when the full record is there and the cases have been argued and everybody put, puts all their cards on the table. When those cards are on the table, we're going to win because the history and text of the Second Amendment is totally on our side.
0: And so you're, you know, you, when you look at this landscape that's developed in, I mean, it hasn't even been a year yet since Bruin, but right. uh, you look at the landscape that's developed, and to your eyes, as somebody who's practiced this stuff for, for decades, for 40 years, 50 years, um, is this uh, the this, this schedule? Like, are we in a normal area? Are things actually moving faster? Than normal in, in these gun rights cases? Or are we seeing the same sort of delaying tactics that that people got tired of after, you know, between Heller and Bruin? Uh, you know, if you, this Maryland case, if you get to the next, if you lose at the trial court level and then you get to the Fourth Circuit, is the Fourth Circuit just going to take forever to decide your case? I mean, they haven't gotten to that, uh, the Sullivan's ban case that, that the Supreme Court sent back down to them yet, right? So, uh, I, I what's your honest take on how the landscape looks right now?
1: Well, there's no doubt that a lot of these anti-gun state attorney generals are going to delay this as much as they can because they know they're not really in a good position to win. And there's no doubt that you're going to have some anti-gun judges in the courts that are going to delay it as well. We have a case here in Washington State on our our, our magazine ban that the the judge set, didn't set a trial date to even go into court for well over a year. I think it comes up in in uh, in December 2024, uh, you know, and that case was filed a year ago, uh, and so they there's ways that they can stall it. But to be honest about it, one of the big changes has been since Bruin. We never would have been able to win temporary restraining orders or preliminary injunctions. Period, pre Bruin, those are being won all, all over the country right now. And while they, they may get then stayed on the appeal court level, and, and you know, until the appeals court you know can can look at the case. We never would have progressed this far this fast, you know, and it's been, as you said, less than a year since Bruin. So we're doing very, very well. Again, you know, it's trying our patience because a right delayed is a right denied.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, I certainly sympathize with those people who take the pessimistic view. But I I think I agree with you ultimately on where things are at. It does feel like, frankly, there have been real changes and it is things are tilted more in favor of uh, gun rights advocates at this point. Uh, and, but the courts still take a lot still it's still a process it's still not going to happen overnight uh regardless so that uh, it's interesting to hear hear your view on it cuz you've been doing it for so long but all right well we really appreciate you coming on to address uh the situation out there in Washington uh the back and forth you're having with the AG and then also some of these cases that you guys have uh just had some big developments on out here on the the east coast so uh, thank you again for joining us, and we'll have to have you on again in the future.
1: Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate the opportunity to explain some of this. Thank you.
0: Yes. And where, where can people go if they want to find out more about the Second Amendment Foundation?
1: Uh, they can go to saf.org, and at the SAF website, we also posted a uh, news release about our suit against the Attorney General in Washington State, along with a full copy of the lawsuit itself.
0: All right. Wonderful. We're going to head over to our news update now. Thanks. All right, we're back with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing this week, Jake? Doing all right, Steve. How are you? I'm doing okay. I've uh, had a lot of feedback actually from listeners on my whole uh, concealed carry journey, my update to my journey to update my concealed carry rig. Um, And so I I appreciate that from everyone. Uh, Lots of different holster advice. Um, I have managed to be able to carry that alien gear holster properly you basically just have to tuck the optic under the belt when i when i put it on um so it's okay solution it's not great um i don't know it's still it also prints a lot more than i think i ever like to admit to myself <laughs> uh unless i'm wearing you know something uh, another shirt over top of my t-shirt or a jacket or something it is very comfortable to carry that way for me. But, uh, you know, I think I, I think I'm gonna try appendix. Um, I don't You're still appendix,
2: right? I was gonna say, welcome to the dark side. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, you had, did you ever try strong side before you went to appendix? Or did you just go to I church? did.
2: Yeah, I did. Uh, to me, appendix was more comfortable. And I just liked hmm. I, I was much quicker to draw with appendix. And I think that did it for me most of all is just the accessibility portion and so i've just managed to find a, a, a fitment that works and a holster that works mm-hmm. and i haven't looked back since
0: yeah so uh, one of the top companies recommended and, and i think i mentioned them on the show too uh, i actually know the founders uh, sarah and john but is uh, was filster uh, the enigma system that they have is um, something that they're actually going to send me a review one. So I'm going to try to work my way through it. Uh, it's, you know, this isn't, we don't do reviews really on this show or on the reload. Uh, this is more just like a, my personal journey sort of thing that people seem to like these little updates. So, uh, so I'm going to try out the Enigma. I'm going to see if I can figure out a way to make appendix work for me. Um, I'm, you know, my, uh, my body type is pretty different from yours in that I have a, uh, a big stomach you can't see it on camera because the camera is uh, cut off right before the stomach area <laughs> but, uh and and uh you know intentionally hide it fairly well but uh it is there and it does seem like it would cause issues for appendix to me but i there are other people out there with my same body type that do carry appendix and i'll have to see You know, probably. I mean, this is the thing about appendix from everything I've been told by both Sarah at Filster and a lot of uh, videos that I've watched on YouTube is, uh, you know, it's one of those carry styles. You really have to adjust it for your personal uh, body type and and how the gun fits on you. And so it takes a little bit more effort to get it right. Is my understanding. Do you think that's true?
2: Yeah, and it's also really frustrating cuz uh, you'll get a lot of input from someone saying, "Oh, this holster is great for appendix. It's the best. It, it conceals really well." And then you try it and you're like, "Well, this this is crap. It prints worse than anything I've ever had." So even the <laughs> holster holster fitment is so different from person to person, it depends on the gun you use. So, yeah, there really is a lot yeah. of trial and error involved.
0: Yeah, you know, and I've looked at probably a dozen different holster companies including a bunch of the ones that people recommended and you know, some of them are, seem to be much better than others. I think it was JM is is one I can't... That's one I've heard, what, yeah. That, what one are you using?
2: So I have an old-style Bravo concealment, which is... Okay. They used to be like a really good bargain holster brand. Uh, mm-hmm. They've changed That's their so Kydex lately, and I don't really care much for their updated holsters. So I'm still rocking mm-hmm. the one that I bought like five or six years ago, and I, it's worked great for me. But I've heard pretty rough things about their, their current offerings. Side steer clear of them personally.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, all these different holster cups. I I have to say that this is another area of the firearms market that I'm not super impressed by. uh, As a as a novice, we'll say like I mean I've been carrying for years, but I I haven't been somebody who goes out and tries a dozen different uh, holsters. So I'm a bit of a novice in terms of like how all these different companies. Operate, but looking through them all, first of all, their designs all seem very similar to one another. Um, they don't really focus. There's, they're pretty confusing to go through and set up for yourself if you've never, if you don't already know what you want going in. Uh, there's not a lot of adjustability in the vast majority of holsters out there. Um, so it's 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 quite an adventure. That's one area where I think Filster is doing something different than everybody else. That seems like it's sort of infinitely customizable. You could really carry the gun on on your body anywhere because it's not relying on your belt, Um, which I think will help me because of my body type. But, you know, I have that cheap uh, CYA is the brand holster that, and I've tried, you know, putting the gun in there empty and just trying to position it in different places and can't find anything remotely comfortable with that thing. Um, You know, now it's unmodified. It doesn't have... uh, the, what do they call them? The, the, the little hook that pushes on your belt. Oh, the claw, the wing, yeah. Claw or wing or whatever. Uh, and it doesn't have any, um, of the, like, boy, I can't remember the terms for any of these things, pillows or, um, Oh
2: yeah. Like the wedge wedges
0: wedges. Yeah. Yeah. So see, so, you know, it's not super set up, but I just trying it, trying it in that holster anywhere along the front of my body was just, no, it wasn't comfortable at all to carry, uh, to walk around or sit down either way. <laughs> and so, uh, that's where I think the filster will at least give me a little more, uh, a lot more options of where I can put it on my body, um, to try and figure that out. So that's what I'm going to try. You know, it's, um, this is not meant to be a rigorous review. It's just sort of, uh, I'm going to try these things and I'll let you guys know how I, how I feel about them. <laughs> Um, you know, I still like that alien gear holster, even though it has a number of things that I think are legitimate deficiencies, right? Like it, I mean, one of the things that's nice about it is that it's adjustable in a number of different ways, cant and ride height and all that and, uh, and retention as well. The big problem with it for me was that the, the, um, the plate that the Kydex part wasn't formed to fit my particular setup. So I had to cut off the part for the optic to make the gun fit in there properly. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the trigger guard isn't completely covered. It's covered almost completely. So I don't think it's a safety issue, but it's not, it's not great. Not ideal. Uh, Yeah. You know, you, you, I mean, alien gear and a lot of these bigger companies, they make holsters for every kind of gun that exists. And some of the ways they do that, it seems, is by making like a basic template, especially the backplate and then using that for 50 different guns. And so they aren't all perfectly customized to the individual gun. And so you'll get little gaps in the, uh, the trigger guard cover. And, and then of course, like it's in a position where it's going to print more easily. Right. Um, and so it's not ideal in that sense either um and and it's harder to reholster because you can't see behind your back when you're reholstered you'd rather look in the gun if you're reholstering it for safety reasons so you don't catch anything in the trigger um you know there's a there's a lot of drawbacks to carrying that way i don't know uh if appendix will fix all those things for me or if if it's going to be if i can find a comfortable enough way to do it but I guess I'm going to find out.
2: (laughs) I've heard good things about the Filster, so hopefully you like it.
0: I've heard lots of good things about it, too. You know, there's lots of positive reviews out there on it. Um, And, you know, it's more like a holster holding system than it is a holster itself. Like, yeah, they make the express version that comes with a holster in it. But you could put any holster on the thing, from what I understand. And so you can use whatever your favorite holster is, um, but we'll we'll see if I can make it work from from me, my body type, my my wardrobe. You know, concealed carry is a series of trade-offs, right? Regardless, yeah, uh, you know the size of the gun you carry, where you yep. where you carry it, what kind of clothes you wear. It's all a series of trade-offs to that you have to make in order to get to your goal of of I'm just being able to
2: protect yourself. Um, I'm just switching my setup now because of those trade-offs. Cause now that the weather's getting hot, I can't really get away with a full size gun anymore because you are wearing just a t-shirt and shorts or whatever. So I'm back to carrying my shield because it's much more concealable. And like I said, it's trade-offs trade-offs.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the things I was thinking was when I was like taking my unloaded, uh, X macro and trying to position it around my body is like, where is this going to sit properly on me and to where it's not going to restrict my movement uh, with my body type and it's, you know, it's hard, it's hard to know. And it's hard to, uh, it's harder to conceal a bigger gun. I mean, just, just bottom line. And so I tried it with my three, six, five as well. And that was easier to find a more comfortable position, but yeah. Do I want to carry that smaller gun with less capacity? Do I want to just stick with strong side? These are all the things I'm to have to figure out. Um, but, you know, it, <clears throat> It's, it's similar to red dots. I thought for a long time that I wasn't very impressed with that part of the market either. This is very, it's pretty expensive for uh, for a long time. There's There were all kinds of different standards for potatoes, it confusing. It's gotten better. And now I've switched to red dots and I'm a, a increasingly big believer in them. I'm carrying a red dot now. And so it's probably the same thing with appendix. You know, th- this is where everybody in the tactical community is has gone, right is appendix. Uh, There's a lot of advantages to it from everything I've been told. Um, So I'm gonna try it at least, you know, I try not I'm trying to, to open myself up to new possibilities. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I upgraded my gun, so I might as well mess around with how I'm actually carrying it. See if I can find something better for me. Sure. But I'll keep you guys all updated on how it goes. <laughs> the pilster the, the Enigma hasn't shown up yet. So uh, I probably won't be here for a little while. So I'll be sticking with the strong side for the moment. And even that, like maybe I'll switch away from, I mean, hybrid holsters have all kinds of issues. I think that the 3.5 from Alien Gear kind of solves a lot of them. And with adding that backplate that makes sure that the gun is actually secured as, as opposed to, you know, the traditional leather back plate, which doesn't really retain your gun at all uh, after a while once it breaks in. And so, but there's still plenty of other drawbacks. Uh, so well, maybe I'll, Maybe I'll this will be a whole ongoing thing where I try a bunch of different holsters and we'll accidentally <laughs> turn into a review review chat. Right, right. <laughs> I don't think so I think we're more focused on the, the politics and policy. We should keep it there. And speaking of which, what what
2: stories do we have this week? Sure. So yeah, the links to the newsletter. Uh first up, we have uh, big news out of Nevada where the state's Republican governor actually just vetoed three gun control bills. Uh, there was a bill to raise the age for possession of semi-automatic long guns to 21. Yeah. So possession, across the board right? possession, right? Yeah, not that's, just sales, that's but actual more possession. True. Yeah. And then there was a bill to ban the possession of firearms within 100 feet of polling places. So basically, a ban on carry in certain areas.
0: Yeah, and that then- one's uh you know it's interesting because that one's not as uh far out there as what you're seeing in places like Maryland or right um, new, Jer- new jersey new york those sorts of places polling place bans are pretty common in terms of uh, concealed carry so that's but i think the governor said it was too broad that it, it went beyond like your normal uh polling place band so
2: yeah and his rationale was folks aren't always aware of where polling places are so they may accidentally on their you know on their day-to-day walk, walk or whatever that,
0: you make that uh exclusion zone too big, you're going to capture a lot of people who aren't even intending to have a gun there.
2: And then finally, the third bill was just to expand the category of prohibited persons under state law to include gross misdemeanors and felony hate crimes, which is kind of funny because felony already is the the operative word there, which is already a prohibitory uh, category. Yeah. For life. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't know what a gross misdemeanor is in Nevada, but I but looked it up. It's essentially
2: a more serious misdemeanor. So a, a, okay. a basic misdemeanor is punishable by up to six months, whereas a gross misdemeanor in Nevada is punishable by up to 364 days in jail. So it's just like an extra hmm. bad misdemeanor. But this wouldn't be a
0: lifetime ban. I
2: mean, are... Yeah, I believe it was 10 years. It was like a 10-year ban for those gross yeah, misdemeanor still, folks. Still a very long time. And that's right. just for any gross misdemeanor are yep. violent. Just said, just said gross misdemeanor.
0: Yeah. So um, that's an I haven't really heard, like, I've heard pushes to ban, I think 97% is one of the gun control groups that wants to uh, expand prohibited persons list to violent misdemeanors. Um, I haven't heard anyone try to expand it to just all gross misdemeanors, right. but, but so that's interesting. And it's, it's weird to pair it with this ban on uh, prohibiting people who are already prohibited from owning guns for okay. life. Right. Um, but, you know, that's lawmakers. Sometimes they don't sometimes or maybe oftentimes they don't actually know anything about what they're doing that's right uh, or it could be that the state doesn't have a, a i mean i'd be very hard i would doubt a lot that the state doesn't already have the same basic prohibitions that federal law has i would assume
2: so as well but, i don't know that for a fact maybe. but well, yeah
0: that, that could be the one caveat
2: here um, yeah
0: uh, but it is, and then, you know what's you know what else is interesting about that story though in nevada is um it contrasts quite well against what's happened in Michigan, Minnesota, and Maryland, right? Where you saw Republicans uh, who ran some pretty terrible candidates, right? Uh, Dan Cox in Maryland comes comes to mind, who only got 30% of the vote and was, uh, you know, a QAnon. He spoke at QAnon conspiracy conferences. Um, he only got 30% of the vote despite being endorsed by Donald Trump. And like in those states where Republicans underperformed, you're seeing a slew of new gun control legislation get through now that democrats have taken over control and you don't see that in nevada where the governor ran um uh, a very different kind of campaign and won right and uh republicans were able to maintain just enough presence in the legislature that there isn't a veto proof majority there and so now these gun control initiatives aren't going to be
2: enacted Yeah, it's a perfect example of elections have consequences, as you said, on either side, right? You see in states where Democrats secured their first blue trifectas in many years, in the case of Michigan and Minnesota, and immediately gun control gets passed. And then you have, as you said, here in Nevada, where uh, Lombardo, the the governor, was the only candidate to unseat an incumbent governor in the 2022 election. So he very much overperformed Republicans nationwide and as a result was able to stop uh bills from being, and I believe in the
0: primary he beat um, a much further right challenger yeah. um so you know it is the, the yeah elections have consequences and these are the results uh as you see and I think I believe you have a piece coming out on this
2: uh as well soon yeah on the reload so yeah people so stay should check
0: that, that out they want to yeah want to read more about it
2: and then next we have uh from the Louisiana Illuminator it's a story that uh, that's, a great, way, that's a great.
0: That's uh, a great newspaper
2: name. It is a great. That's why I, I chuckled when I threw that in the in the newsletter I because I hadn't seen that before. Love those um, old
0: style newspaper names. Yeah, I bet that's an old paper too. I, I don't know anything about them, but I bet they've been they probably named that in 1920
2: and they've just been going ever since. It's I hope like so. That's Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but the story is that lawmakers are once again trying to get permitless carry across the finish line down there. Um, it just cleared its first committee hearing on an 8 to 1 vote. Republicans still have their supermajority in both houses of the legislature there. Uh, listeners may recall that they previously passed a permitless carry bill in 2021, but were unsuccessful in their attempt to override the veto from the state's Democratic governor, and he's still in office. And there's no indication yet that he's changed his mind about. Permitless carry. So we'll see. We'll see what happens this session.
0: There's a big cluster the last time around down there for Louisiana Republicans uh, who tried to do the veto override and then failed, which like, I mean, if you're going to try to do it, you would think that leadership would know they're going to succeed. But apparently, apparently not. Um, Didn't have their ducks in a row. Yeah. Yeah. And I. so I think Republicans have a slightly bigger majority now, if I understand correctly. So maybe they have a little more room this time around for error, but uh, this actually goes back to the last point, right? Uh, because Maryland, uh, you know, I brought up Maryland and uh, Cox, the the candidate for governor there, uh, because Maryland had a Republican governor, a moderate Republican governor, Larry Hogan. He wasn't he wasn't a, a gun rights crusader by any means, but um, but he he also is the, was the one who forced the state to start issuing. Concealed carry permits after Bruin was handed down too. So, um, you know, he he uh, having someone like that in office, even if you have the exact same legislature that where Democrats have a supermajority in both houses and could, in theory, override a veto, doesn't mean that every gun control bill will pass anyway, or that right. every veto will be overcome. You can see that in Louisiana. Louisiana has a supermajority of Republican control in their legislature. And they weren't able to overcome the, dem- the, uh, the governor's veto in this situation last time around. So uh, and I think it's even more likely that Maryland wouldn't have tr- gone down that path uh, in the first place, because the bill that they're passing in Maryland is very unlikely to survive scrutiny in the courts. We've seen identical bills in New York and New Jersey get blocked as unconstitutional by federal se- a plethora of federal judges to this point. So, uh it's much less likely that the the Democratic supermajority there even if it had remained a supermajority because obviously if the governor wins, usually that means they the his party does a little better in the legislature than right if the if they if they lose. So, um <clears throat> just, you know, some of the ways that even even if it looks like oh well if you just switch out this Governor with the other party, you'd still have the super majorities to work to deal with. And, uh, you know, even in those circumstances, you see that it doesn't always
2: work out um, politically quite as black and white as that. Yeah, that's a good point. And then, speaking of governors, our last story that we'll talk about before we jump into our reporting is comes to us from the Chattanooga Times Free Press, and it has to do with Governor Bill Lee out in Tennessee. We've been talking about him frequently lately. Uh, this time, it's because he signed into law a bill. To essentially codify a state version of the protection of lawful commerce and arms act it's a, a liability shield for the gun industry um, to prevent basically lawsuits trying to make them civilly liable for crimes committed with their firearms by third parties uh, so he signed that into law this week
0: yeah i mean um this passed before the shooting at uh, the commentary school so it's a bit of a you know holdover from the normal session uh, and the, from the, before the governor called for his sort of red flag proposal or order protection proposal, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. And um, so, you know, it could give him some further credibility among gun owners there, possibly that he signed this, you know, he hasn't just started uh, vetoing all the pro-gun bills and pushing all the uh, gun control bills or anything of that nature. So we'll have to see if that, this has any impact on the politics for the August special session, where they are going to consider that red flag proposal, uh, which we talked about last week with Cam Edwards, um, some of the critiques that remain of that bill and some of the you know, specific details So people should check out that, that podcast episode, if they want to hear more about the, this upcoming fight, which I think is still the most interesting fight uh, at the state level, as far as gun policy is concerned. So obviously, we'll continue to cover it as as it moves forward. There probably won't be much news for another couple months, though, because that, again, it's not till August that they go into that special session.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, uh, you had a story this week about the Supreme Court finally made a decision on what it's going to do with regard to assault weapon bans. So what happened there?
0: Yeah. So the court declined to intervene on an emergency basis, and that that part is very important. But they declined to intervene in the case against Naperville, Illinois, so-called assault weapons ban. You know the ban on AR-15s, AK-47s, and similar semi-automatic uh, firearms that are commonly owned by uh, by Americans, and uh, and I believe it also has a magazine limit, uh, ten rounds or less. Uh, it's a sales ban; can't sell them inside city limits of Naperville. And this case was brought by the National Association for Gun Rights, which um, lost at the circuit court level, or sorry, the district court level, the first level, uh, on its request for uh, a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction. And then it had appealed to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals asking for um, a temporary restraining order while the appeal on merits was considered, that was denied. And so then they went up to the Supreme Court and asked for one from them, uh, which now has been denied. But I think one of the really key things here, and I wrote a whole analysis piece about this at the Reload for members who want to check out some more details on this. But one of the key bits is, is that those sorts of filings, those requests to the court on an emergency basis to intervene before really even the merits have been decided uh, at any level. Actually, in this case, they've really just been on the sort of temporary restraining order uh, aspect of this, which which is something that you would get before the merits are considered and something there's a much higher bar for a judge to grant. Um, It's very uncommon for the court to actually issue those emergency injunctions. It's very uncommon for them to even consider issuing them to even respond to them and ask for the defendants to issue a brief that, that was what made this particularly interesting in the first place, right? Uh, which is that Amy Coney Barrett, who's the justice that oversees the seventh circuit asked for Naperville to send in a brief defending its law, um, which which implied that the court was interested in the case at the very least and may have been considering jumping in at that point. Um, but as we see now, they've decided
2: against doing so. Yeah. As you said, it's a, it's a pretty rare thing for a court, as you said, to jump in before the merits have even kind of worked themselves out in the lower courts, mm-hmm. especially on, a, on an instance like this where the Supreme Court hasn't really done anything with assault weapon bans on the merit merits. Obviously, we've talked about before, there's some yep. people on the court that have, but the court itself hasn't. And you've even seen this in cases where they have done something on the merits like this. Uh, they declined to get involved in the Second Circuit case involving New York's concealed carry restrictions. And that's directly <laughs> related to what they just ruled in Bruin. So if right. they're not going to get involved in the early stages in that instance, it's obviously going to be less likely that they're going to get involved in something they haven't even really heard yet
0: yeah and i think that was something that we tried to emphasize when i talked to mark yeah. smith uh on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this exact issue is like these are not common things for the court to issue i mean it's not even common for them to consider them right that right. that's why this got so much attention is right. that people assume that because they were considering or they wanted to hear about the case that maybe they were going to jump in and do something about it uh, but yeah as you noted there recent history suggested that they probably wouldn't because there are actually two cases uh, in New York where the same request was made and the the court denied both of those. Um, Now, the first one, though, was even more interesting because that was uh, Antioch. And that was the case where there's a Gunners of America case where the court denied the request, but Alito and Thompson wrote a concurrence, right? That's That sort of it was two paragraphs, but it gave some insight into their thinking. And they said that the in that case, the lower court, the district court, had actually blocked New York's law. Right, so it's different in this than this case because the lower court here declined to block the law. They didn't issue a temporary restraining order. Whereas in the Antioch case, they did issue one. The judge did issue one, and then it got stayed by the Second Circuit, who didn't offer up any explanation for why they were staying it. And um, and what they were going to do with the case, and they stayed a couple of cases that were related to it. And so the judges, the justices there, were like, "We like this lower court ruling, this district court ruling, or at least we think it was thorough." Um, you know, they didn't they didn't necessarily see that, say that it was right, but they had said it was thorough, which sort of implies that perhaps they think it was right. Um, and said they don't want to step basically on the toes of the lower courts. Um, you know, they were denying this request out of respect for the Second Circuit and its process, uh, but they also said, they also sort of hinted that they wanted the Second Circuit to speed things up, move, move things along, start explaining its thoughts on why they issued the stay and why, what they're going to do with this case, uh, because they, they mentioned that the Second Circuit hadn't explained themselves and they encouraged the plaintiffs to apply again for emergency relief if the Second Circuit didn't start moving, uh, which the the Second Circuit did. And then I think that also comes into play here because one of the key things to remember about this Naperville case is that it's not the only case in Illinois about an assault weapons ban. There's a statewide ban now that has also been challenged and is now in front of the Seventh Circuit. Uh, on appeal from the uh, the government of Illinois, because they the district court judge in that case uh, had blocked the law, and the Seventh Circuit seems to have gotten the message that was sent to the Second Circuit, which is that hey, we're going to let you do your thing. We let you go through this case like you would normally go through it, but you need to you need to hurry up. And so, right. the <laughs> Seventh Circuit put this on an expedited schedule. And I think that probably had a lot to do with why the court decided not to get involved. You know, there's, this is a lot of tea leaf leaf reading, right? It's a lot of the sort of reading the entrails here because you kind of got to do that with the Supreme court. They don't, uh, unless they specifically tell you something you can't really know what their thought process is. But I think, you know, people follow the court, people who understand the court know that them requesting that brief is unusual and in itself, in and of itself may have sent a signal to the seventh circuit that, Hey, the court's paying close attention to this right. and they were paying close attention to that New York case too. And look at where they were. They said there, maybe we should, maybe we should do the same thing and speed up our, our, uh, our process here as yeah.
2: well. That's a good point. And another point I want to emphasize is, is something you hammered home in your analysis piece on this, which if you're a member, you should go read, um, is that people shouldn't get over their skis about what this means one way or another in terms of the merits of assault opens bans. You, you make, yeah. You've make you seen so many public comments from, for example, the the state politicians that supported Illinois state ban, for example, saying, see, we told you that this was constitutional. Yep. The Supreme Court said so. And then you see gun and rights advocates. you've seen a number
0: of, of headlines to
2: that effect as well. Right. And it's like, no, that, that, it's this has not nothing to do with the merits of an assault open ban one way or another. Uh, so I, I appreciated that you put that in your members piece. And I think that's worth reiterating here that this says nothing about how the Supreme Court actually views the merits of an assault open ban in terms of its constitutionality.
0: And I also think that it doesn't suggest that the court is not going to do anything in this front. yeah. Because that, that's what you say. There's a lot of pessimism lately that I've noticed I mean, there's always some pessimism out there in the, the, from the gun rights community on, on the courts, uh, especially after the, you know, the decade between Heller and, and Bruin, where there was a lot of, um, the court just was not very active. Um, and so I think there's a lot of fear from people that they're going to, they're going to be that way again, and they're just going to let the lower courts do whatever they want, um, whether it comports with what they said in Bruin or not. And... You know, I wouldn't take that away from this either. Uh, certainly, right. like, it's a loss. It's it's not it's not a good thing for the National Association of Gun Rights. You would, if you're a gun rights supporter, you would prefer that the court get involved at this stage and say, no, this isn't, uh, this lower court decision is wrong and the Sullivan's bans are not constitutional. That's what you'd want to happen here. But it's kind of, i think the analogy i used in the piece was like it's kind of like missing a buzzer beater uh, at the end of the first quarter in a basketball game like it, you'd rather have it go in but it's not the end of the game by any means All right not even close and and i think that people have a somewhat unrealistic idea of how fast the court operates under normal circumstances like, it does seem like they're expediting things. And Alan uh, Galib in the earlier part of the, the podcast talked a little bit about this. But, like, it's been less than a year since Bruin. It's not that surprising that the court hasn't taken up uh, right. another gun rights case already. They they just put down a new standard. I think it's fairly normal for them to want to see how the lower courts percolate and and how they – look at this standard, what arguments they come up with, what evidence they find that they want a fully developed case. I mean, this is generally true of all the cases they take. I think Um, they want there to be a fully developed record so that uh, they can go off of that rather than jumping in halfway through proceedings, you know, and and just deciding everything themselves. I mean, that the Supreme Court is the end of the line, not the start of it. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I just don't think it says much of anything about the merits of the assault weapons ban, uh, or really about whether or not the court is going to be aggressively pursuing new Second Amendment cases. I mean, I think they're going to have to, uh, the thing about the assault weapons ban stuff too, is like, you're still really waiting on a circuit split to develop there because these things haven't even gotten to final rulings, excuse me, on the circuit level yet. So, they have a, as far as the legal side of it goes, they have a pretty long way to to go for how the court is traditionally operated. They're probably more likely to have to take up some of these cases where you've seen federal laws struck down because they tend to um, give deference to, to those kinds of cases anyway, where the federal government is trying to appeal um, a ruling uh, on federal law. So, you're more likely to see Rahimi, the domestic violence restraining order case, uh, before the court than you are, I think, an assault weapons ban case. Uh, because I mean, you, you still, the Fourth Circuit hasn't ruled on their uh, their case out of Maryland that the Supreme Court sent down. You still have case cases in California that haven't been. I mean, I don't think Benitez hasn't even gotten through his uh, district level uh, decisions yet. Uh, on the Sullivan Span's case, um, you know, the, this Illinois case is the Seventh Circuit is on an expedited schedule, but they haven't gotten through even oral arguments on that yet. So, uh, or I think even the briefings haven't been completely filed yet. So, there, there's a lot that ha- just normal legal procedure that has to go on before you're you're going to get a, a final result in the assaultments Span cases I think I think that's and, a good point and I and I don't think it's out of the ordinary I don't think it means anything in particular one way or the other as far as uh, you know there's some tea leaves you can read like I mentioned earlier about why it seems like the justices are probably leaning more towards the uh, con- looking boy what's the right way to put this because I don't want to get way too far out of there to me this the signs point to, the justices not agreeing with these brown response laws, and also probably being skeptical of assault weapons bans. That that's that's where I I am at right now. But I don't think that there's that much to go off of on on either one of those fronts. We still have a long way to go. That's tea leaf reading kind of stuff. Yeah, I think so. that's right. But anyway, that's all we've got for this week. Uh, we appreciate you guys stopping by once again. If you Like the show, make sure you share it with your friends and family and leave a rating on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Uh, That'll help us grow the show. Leave comments, feedback. We always appreciate reading it and try to work off of it. And if you want to support our reporting, you can also head over to thereload.com and sign up for a membership. Buy a membership today. We got annual memberships, monthly memberships, Every dollar goes to supporting our reporting. That is how we fund the reload. It is member funded. There are no corporate backers or owners or anything of that nature. I own it 100%. And um, we could not make it work without our members. So if you buy a membership, of course, you'll be doing more than just supporting us. You will get access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you won't find anywhere else And you'll get this podcast a day early, as well as an opportunity to appear on the show if you would like to. We love doing those member segments. Please, if you're a member who wants to be on the show, reach out. We'll have you on. And uh, that's all we've got for this week. So we will see you guys again real soon.